We're going to begin this morning with a little exercise. I, I would encourage you to do this on paper. You can do it in your head if you want. There's a, on the back of your bulletin, there's some space to make notes. What I want you to do, I want you to just write down the first two or three things that come to your mind. Don't think about this too much. Just kind of write down what pops in your head. Okay? The God of the Old Testament is, okay, you fill in that blank. Attributes, descriptions, don't think too hard. Just what pops in your mind when you hear the God of the Old Testament is fill in the blank. And I'll give you just a second to do that. Okay, please stand with me as we read God's word from Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. Exodus 34, 4 through 8. So Moses chiseled out two tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped. This is God's word. You may be seated. A.W. Tozer writes this. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about us. If Tozer is correct, what you wrote down on that piece of paper, what came to your mind is really important. It matters. And if we were to understand who God is, there's maybe no better place in the Old Testament to go to than Exodus 34, 6 through 7, which is essentially ground zero in the Old Testament for understanding the character of God. Here we don't have to speculate on who God is. We don't have to guess who God is. God lays out very clearly who God is. And not only is this an important passage to us, this was an incredibly important passage to the writers of Scripture. It's possibly, so these two verses, 34, 6 through 7, are possibly the most quoted verses in the Bible by the biblical authors. Okay, so in the Old Testament, the biblical authors are constantly circling back to these verses. They're quoting them, There's, they're referencing them. One we'll talk about later, we'll use them back to God sarcastically. They're alluding to them. It's as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says, Exodus 34, 6-7 is the John 3, 16 of the Hebrew Bible. If you were to travel back thousands of years ago to ancient Israel and go to a football game, the Browns would be bad, and there'd be some guy sitting behind the goalposts with a wig on that has a sign that said Exodus 34, 6-7. Because if you want to point someone really quickly to one passage in the Hebrew Bible that gives a summary of who God is in a really short amount of time, this is a great place to send them. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, 
maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How are we doing? That's good? We good on that part? Compassionate, gracious, abounding in love. It's hard to argue with that. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That part's a little, a little more difficult, a little hard to swallow. Right, first part, pretty good. Second part, pretty challenging. Uh, we looked at part of that uh, on the children, the generational sin, back a couple months ago when we looked at the second commandment. I would encourage you to go back there. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk about this tension that we see in these verses. Okay? How, how is God both merciful and judgmental? Okay? How does God both forgive wickedness, forgive rebellion, forgive sin, and yet not leave the guilty unpunished? See, there's this tension we see in these verses uh, between God's mercy and God's judgment. Think back to a time you, um, you got some feedback. It was at work, performance review. You made something. Somebody looked at it. You made dinner. Somebody gave you some feedback. They tell you five things that were great about your performance, and one critique. What do you always walk away thinking about? It's always the critique. It's always the negative. And I say that because I think something similar can happen with these two verses. We've got a lot of really, really powerful mercy at the beginning. We do have some judgment. But I want you to see it's very heavily weighted towards mercy. We've got five declarations of God's grace in these two verses, and one of judgment. So let's start with the grace. Let's start with compassionate, okay? First word God uses to describe God's self, compassionate. In English, compassionate means literally to suffer with. So when we, uh, someone we love is suffering, uh, when we're compassionate, we're in a sense entering into that suffering of that person. We just think, we kind of take this for granted, but think about this, the creator of everything, the heavens and the earth, Yahweh, is moved by Yahweh's creation. We kind of take that for granted, but that is just stunning to me. That Yahweh is not stoic. Yahweh is not unflappable. Yahweh enters into relationship with Yahweh's creation and is reactive. Yahweh has emotions. Okay, Yahweh is not moody. Yahweh is not capricious. But Yahweh has emotions. Uh, The Hebrew word here is rahum. Rahum comes from the root word meaning female womb, okay? Does that mean that Yahweh is a she? Does that mean that Yahweh has a womb? No, I don't think so. We typically, when we talk about God, we typically use the pronoun he, right? Because that's what the biblical authors use. But it's good to remember that the long profession has always been that God is beyond gender, okay? Back in Genesis 1, God creates both male and female in God's image, right? Meaning that both males and females reflect who God is. So it shouldn't surprise us when we come to a place in Scripture where God describes God's self this way, womb-like, right? So this feeling behind this word compassion in Hebrew is, is this feeling that a mother has towards that infant child of hers? Okay, there's, there's, I want to point you out one place this word is used. In 1 Kings, there's a strange story, kind of weird, kind of Interesting about these two women that are fighting over this child. Both of the women claim to be the child's mother. The king at the time, King Solomon, he orders a sword be brought, and he orders that the child be cut in two. Okay? One half of the child goes to one woman, one half goes to the other, because you know that's what you do in these kind of situations. 
But we read this. The woman whose son was alive was deeply moved out of love for her son. In the original Hebrew, the verse reads that the woman was deeply moved by her rahum. She was deeply moved by her womb. She was moved out of this visceral, intense, motherly love for that child. You've, most of us have probably watched a mother nurse her child. Just imagine in your mind the way that mother looks at that child. Think about the depth of the love that mother has for that child. There's something different about it. There's something fierce about it. As one person writes, it's a mode of visceral, in the marrow of your bones kind of love that is stronger than life itself. It's a powerful thing to watch a mother look at its infant. Just think about that for a second. As God describes God's self, this is the first word that God moves to to describe himself. The feeling a mother has for a child. Just let that sink in for a second. And it's not that God feels that way about you and I sometimes. Like on the days that we're really got things going well. We got our A game going on. Helped the help someone that's morning, that morning. We read our Bible that morning. We are in good standing with God. God looks at us like a mother looks at their child. No. In fact, I think, like, think about it. As a parent, many of you probably experienced this, oftentimes it's in moments of rebellion that our children are rebelling that we actually, this kind of deep, desperate love a parent has for their child is actually activated all the more. See, Yahweh's baseline emotion towards his creation is compassion, is mercy, is love. When you think about God, is that, is that as you uh, begin to, to, to pray and maybe you imagine God, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Is your baseline for who God is a God who looks at you and feels compassion, who feels something like a nursing mother feels when she looks at her infant child nursing at the breast? I, it's not mine. My baseline, if I'm totally honest, is something like, a fairly distant God kind of paying attention to me with a bit of a critical eye, thinking that I'm not quite getting things right. Is that, was that what I always feel? No, but that's kind of my baseline. If I don't think about it too much, that tends to be where I go. That's kind of unconsciously where I fall back. And these images that we form, often very young, become our baseline for who God is. And they honestly become hard to change. Okay? And some of them are usually based on something that is partially true. Is God a judge? Yeah, we, we see that here. Does God get angry? We'll talk about that. Yes. That's not God's baseline, though. That's not what God naturally is. God's baseline towards you and me is mercy. So what I want to do, just something practical, encourage you this week, as you enter into your time of prayer, before you say a word, let God look at you that way. Let God look at you like a mother looks at her child. Work to replace that baseline of judgment with a baseline of mercy. Second word, God uses to describe God's self, gracious. Okay, think about how do we use this word in English uh, it, it typically means something kind and courteous, maybe uh, to someone that doesn't really deserve it. You invite someone over for dinner, they tromp right in your house, don't wipe their feet, track mud in your house. You, you serve them this dinner that you've been working on all afternoon, and they're like, oh, is this it? They leave without even thanking you for dinner. And as they're walking out, you say, 
thank you for joining us for dinner. You are being gracious to that person, right? You are treating them favorably, even though it doesn't seem like that is what they deserve. If compassion is a feeling word, if it's a word of emotion, gracious is a little bit more of an action word. Graciousness shows favor to someone when they don't necessarily deserve it. Back at the uh, beginning of Exodus, uh, the Israelites are in slavery, and we read about this cry that comes up to the Lord, to God, and we read that God looks at the Israelites and is concerned about them. Okay, God is moved, again, as we talked about, God is moved at an emotional level by their misery. But it doesn't stop there. God acts. Because in the very next scene, we have uh, God encountering Moses at the burning bush and sending Moses to go set them free. Okay, God feels, God acts. God is compassionate, God is gracious. One person describes it like this, gracious is an action word. Like a parent, God comes to the rescue when the kids need help. God doesn't rescue the Israelites because they deserve it. That's just who God is. Again and again in the Bible, we see God coming to the rescue of people, not because they deserve it, but that's just the character of who God is. I think one of the most poignant places we see this is in the New Testament, uh, where we see, the, we read, hear the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you know this parable, but in this parable, uh, the younger son comes up to his father, says, I want my estate. Okay? Basically, wishes his father dead. Son takes an inheritance, goes off to a distant country, squanders all the money on live, wild living, becomes so desperate, the son returns to the father, and the father says, I told you so. That's not what happened, is it? That's maybe what the son deserves. Maybe sometimes we treat our sons and daughters that way. That's not God. Because in Jesus' story, when the son is far away, the father sets off in a sprint towards the son and has compassion on him. Okay, emotion. But that's not it. The father hugs the son, kisses him, throws a party for him, welcomes him back into the family. Because the son deserved it, no. Because that's who God is. God is gracious. God acts for the benefit of his people even when they don't deserve it. But here's the kicker. In the Bible, we see God gracious towards God's people, which I think makes sense. We also see God gracious towards the enemies of God's people. As I mentioned, uh, Exodus 34, 6-7 is the most quoted verse in the Bible, we think, by the biblical authors. And one of my favorite is, by, um, is in the book of Jonah. So remember another really well-known story. God says, Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. Go preach against their wickedness. Jonah gets in a boat, goes the exact opposite direction. Okay, finally, after a long detour, you, you probably know the story. Jonah ends up in Nineveh where he preaches this sermon reluctantly, and there's this mass revival that happens. Nineveh repents, and Jonah is so ticked off. This was not what he hoped for. Okay? Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, the enemy of Israel. This is one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient time. And Jonah cries out to God, this is why I didn't want to come here. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Like, can you just hear, like, he's quoting these verses back, but it's like, I don't like this. I knew it. This is why I didn't want to come here in the first place. Your baseline is graciousness, compassionate. You just can't help yourself but be gracious and compassionate even to our enemies. See, this is where it, this is where it gets a little bit challenging because it means that God's baseline emotion towards me is not that. Because if I'm totally honest, I may not feel it always, 
but I want it, and I kind of sometimes think I deserve it. But here's the deal. Let's, tell, let's make this a little more contemporary. God's baseline of compassion and graciousness is to the diehard MAGA supporter that lives down the street from you. God's baseline of compassion and graciousness is to the diehard supporter of Nancy Pelosi who lives down the street from you. If one of those doesn't drive you crazy, fill in the blank of someone who drives you crazy. Someone who you are convinced is bringing our country to ruin. And we think to ourselves, okay, Nineveh, like one of the most violent empires ever. That's one thing. You don't know my neighbor, God. You don't know my colleague. You don't know my uncle who posts on Facebook. God does not look at them like a mother looks at a child. God wants to knock some sense in them, just like I do. See, we're a lot more like Jonah than I think we'd like to admit. Can we put up that first slide, Ron? Here's a quote from John Mark Comer. Most of us want mercy for ourselves and justice for everybody else. It doesn't work that, like that way. God shows mercy to all. That totally resonated with me. I want mercy for myself, and I want justice for everyone I disagree with. Jesus instructs his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to pray for those people who drive you up the wall. Why? I don't know that I've ever thought about this. Of course, famous uh, passage in the Sermon on the Mount. What I don't think I had realized until this passage was that we are to do this, show mercy and compassion to our enemies so that we act like God. Because that's what God does. Jesus goes on to say, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Does God just send rain on the righteous who deserve it? No, it goes to everyone. Does the sun just rise on those who deserve for the sun to arrive? No. We are to treat people with compassion and graciousness even when they don't deserve it because that's what God does. So I encourage you, let's get practical. The next time in your head or with your spouse, you want to go off on somebody, okay, just pause for a second and, and see that person not as you see them but as God sees them, as a mother looking at their child, as a, as a father it's the father and the prodigal son who is waiting to welcome that person back even though they don't deserve it. Okay, next description. Slow to anger. Again, I think most of us are on board with the compassion and the graciousness. This is where things might start getting a little bit uncomfortable with us, anger. This is a real challenge in the Old Testament for many people. I just want to put that out there. If you are out there and you are uncomfortable with God's anger in the Old Testament, I just want to say I get it. There are various places, if you were to take uh, just snippets of the Old Testament and stack them all up together, you would get a picture of Yahweh whose baseline is not compassion, but is actually anger. And, and this becomes particularly challenging, I think, for us, because most of us have probably had the experience of encountering people, and there are a lot of times men, who are prone to anger and who have power and authority and who have done a lot of harm with that. Okay, so you can imagine, you, that's your image of anger, a powerful, abusive man, and you then naturally you want to project that on God. And understandably, if you do that, you have a real problem. So we won't be able to fully unpack this, but I want you to notice a few things here. One, notice the word slow. God is slow to anger. 
I mean, you can make God angry, but you got to work at it. It's difficult. It takes a while. Because that's not God's baseline emotion. You probably know people in your life that you can expect when you encounter them, it doesn't matter what happened that day, they're angry. Right? They're just about to fly off the handle. That is absolutely not God. That is absolutely not God. You have to work really hard to make God angry. The, the word in the King James Version is a good one here for slow to anger. It's long-suffering, right? Think of someone, instead, think of someone you know, they'll get angry, but you got to push them and push them and push them. And finally, because they're so long-suffering, they'll put up with it, but they will get mad. That's how God describes God's self. And not only do we uh, see God describe himself that way, but that's the God we see in the Bible. So think about this. I was really surprised from surprised at this. When is the first time we read that God is angry in the Bible? I heard someone say this, and I, I can't, I wasn't able to totally verify, but what I could see, I think it's correct. Is it Adam and Eve in the garden? Pretty disobedient. No. We, God says, what have you done? We don't read that God's angry. What about the flood? God was real. God had to have been angry at the flood. What we read, go back to the story, what we read is that God is pained and troubled at the wickedness of humanity, but you don't read anger anywhere. See, I think there's understandably, we tend to kind of read back anger into the text that's not actually there. Judgment, yes. Judgment is there. Well, let's just think about that for a second. Go back to the story of Adam and Eve. God tells them, hey, if you eat this fruit, you're going to die. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Does God zap them, strike them down? No. He makes garments for them, places them outside the garden, and they die. In other words, God gives them what they wanted. This is an important thing to notice about God's judgment. Very often, the way God judges in the Bible is he gives people what they want. Not always. There's some stories, for example, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, they lie about property, and they are struck down right there. There are those examples. But very often in the Bible, the way God judges people is he hands them over to the outcome of their decision. He, in other words, he gives them what they want. Sin is its own punishment. In parenting, you call this method of parenting love and logic, right? You allow the child to do what they want to do. You don't punish them. But you also don't sweep in, swoop in there and protect them from the consequences of that action, right? What happens, the child makes a decision. The, what comes from that decision is the punishment. You don't need to do anything. Very often in the Bible, that's the way, that's the way judgment works. But go back to me. When is God described as angry for the first time? As far as I can tell, it's Exodus 4, 54 chapters into our story. Okay? Let's, let's look at this incident. Uh, God commissions Moses to confront Pharaoh to freeze the Israelites. We looked at this. This is up on Mount Sinai. Moses starts in on all his excuses. I can't do this. It'll never, it'll, never, it'll never work. And finally, you know, God's just sitting there through all these excuses. And finally, uh, uh, Moses just says, please send someone else. And we read that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. So it takes a while, but God gets angry. What does God do with that anger? Is it like the Incredible Hulk? Like God just like rips off the shirt and like smashes Moses to pieces. That's what I think about like burning with anger. Here's what we read. Um, what about your brother Aaron? He speaks well. I'll send him with you. 
Oh, God's burning with anger, and that's okay. Hey, I got another idea here. How about I send Aaron with you? Again, we tend to read things into the text that are not actually there. Second time we read about God angry is when God unleashes God's anger on Pharaoh and the armies at the parting of the Red Sea. Again, ten times. Pharaoh is given ten times to change. God is slow to anger, but God gets very angry than justice. Okay? We, we, we see that. We see that very clearly. God will not stand by as injustice takes place, but he's slow to anger. And then the other time in Exodus we read it is the golden calf incident. Okay? God is very angry at the people who are unfaithful to the covenant. Okay? We again read that God's anger burns, but he relents. We talked about that the last couple weeks. He relents because a righteous intercessor, Moses, stands in the breach for them. So in Exodus we learn, this is a great case study for Yahweh's anger, Yahweh does get angry. It takes a lot. God is slow to anger. God is patient. But God's patience isn't inexha- inexhaustible. And often the, what happens after the anger is different than what we expect. Okay? It's, not like, again, it's not like people are waking up thinking, how did Yahweh wake up today? Does Yahweh wake up on this side of the bed or on this side of the bed? You don't do that with Yahweh. Because Yahweh's baseline emotion is not anger. It's compassion. It's mercy. You can, always under, you can always predict how Yahweh is going to interact, but Yahweh is reactive. Yahweh will become anger. But it's not endemic. It's not who uh, Yahweh is. Okay. Uh, let's also think about this for a second. What if, what if we read the whole Bible and Yahweh never got angry? Okay? Read the whole Bible. God, the Old Testament, God, the New Testament. Anger not once. Would we want that kind of God? I don't want that kind of God. Take the example of just Pharaoh's army. Cries come up. God, we are oppressed. We are enslaved. We are exploited. They rise up to God. And God says, huh, yeah, that's true. There's some brutal exploitation going on down there. God is just totally unflappable. God is not moved at all by the exploitation. That would be deeply alarming to me. Because it would indicate to me that all the injustice that's happening in the world right now, God is just kind of totally unmoved by it. God is totally just like that person who doesn't seem to realize that there's bad things happening around us. Right? Imagine someone you know that never gets angry. Never gets angry. You come home from work, you just got fired because of something you didn't do. You tell your spouse and they say, that's interesting. What are we having for dinner? If my spouse did that to me, it would indicate to me that they just didn't care. They didn't care enough to get angry. It would indicate to me that they're not in a loving relationship with me. As one person puts it, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. That's really true. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. I don't care. Again, we, we've got some challenging passages in the Old Testament. There's some challenges. I don't want to uh, say there's not. But I think we need to remember that none of us wants a God who does not get angry at wickedness, at rebellion, at sin, at injustice. That would indicate that God is indifferent. So God reveals God's self to Moses as a God who is heavily, heavily tilted towards mercy. Right? If we had these two scales, mercy on this side, uh, injustice, and injustice on the other one would be judgment on the other be like this, mercy would be way, way uh, the heavier side. 
That's God's baseline emotion, compassion, unmerited favor, love, faithfulness, forgiveness. But God has made it clear here that God will deal with sin and guilt. Okay? So we've got this challenge here. We've got this tension. We've got a God that says, God whose baseline is, uh, is mercy and compassion, is forgiving, but a God who says, I cannot let sin go unpunished. Like, what do you do with that? A God who is quick to forgive, but yet a God who cannot turn a blind eye to wickedness. How do you do that? How do you have a God who is both merciful and just? How does this tension get resolved? It gets resolved on the cross. What's so amazing about the cross? There's an infinite amazing things about the cross. But one of the really amazing things about the cross is that this is the place where these two parts of God's character come fully together, God's mercy and God's judgment. It's at the cross that God chooses to bear the consequences of sin and guilt and wickedness. God will not let the guilty go unpunished. How does God do it? Who bears the consequences? It's God himself in the person of Jesus. There are multiple things happening at the cross. Uh, There is the defeat of evil, the defeat of Satan that's happening. There is an exodus experience where we are being liberated from the powers of evil. But one of the things that's happening on the cross is this tension is being dealt with. God cannot help but be merciful. It is in God's nature to be merciful. It is who God is. But it is also in God's nature to deal with sin. These things that seem at odds with each other, what does God do? The judge becomes the judged in our place. God does get angry, but God takes that anger out on himself, not us. By choosing to bear the consequences of sin and guilt in God's own self through the person of Jesus. In a stunning moment in time, at the cross, we see God for who God is, compassionate, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving the wickedness, wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Just like Moses says, just like God says to Moses in Exodus. And we see a God who deals with the consequences in sin and evil and rebellion by taking those consequences on himself. How do you respond to a God like that? How do you respond to that level of goodness? Look at Moses in our text. After God passes by Moses, he's been hid in the cleft of the rock. He's been shown the goodness of God. He's been shown what God is really like. And we read that Moses bowed down to the ground and at once bowed at the ground and at once worshiped. What is God like? How do we know if in our head or on our piece of paper that what we have down is really capturing who God really is? Here's how you know. When you realize, when you encounter a God who is so much better than you ever imagined, that means you're getting closer to the real God. When you, like Moses, come into the glory of God and come into the goodness of God and it passes before you and you are so overwhelmed by that that the only thing you know how to do is bow down and worship, you have encountered the real God because that's what God is like. What is God like? God is better than you ever imagined. Let's pray. Gracious God, compassionate God, God abounding in love and faithfulness. What else can we do, Lord, but worship you? If we grasp who you are, what you have done for us, who is your character, Lord, I pray that we 
would know nothing else to do but to bow down and worship you. So I pray, Lord, that that would be our response. I pray that we, as we move from this place, would begin to mimic the character of God, that we would be compassionate and merciful as you are, not to those who deserve it, but those who do not deserve it, because that is what you have done for us. God, let it sink deep into our heart, into our bones, how much you love us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.